Hello, this is Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest, and this is Dr. Daniel J. Guerra. Today, we're going to be doing an audio section on uh, authentic biochemistry. And what I offered to do from the last three video lectures is give you a primer on basic human endocrinology. And that's what I'm here to do now on the audio section. <laughs> now, what we have been doing in the video lectures and in some of the previous audio uh, authentic biochemistry feed is a discussion of the primary scientific literature <clears throat> and how this literature is focusing on the hypothalamic neurons and the arcuate nucleus and then the VMH and how there's a modification of that signaling, both uh, incoming and then exiting from the hypothalamic region that is associated with nutrition and satiety. And that seems to be directly modified by specific fatty acids, either fatty acids in the diet or fatty acids that have been introduced in animal models, particularly a difference between saturated fatty acid, palmitate, and unsaturated fatty acid, the monounsaturated fatty acid, oleate. <clears throat> we also talked a little bit about docosahexaenoic acid and its effects on the inflammatory response and on the expression of the POMC um, protein, which of course is associated um, with those neurons that are going to be receiving leptin as a signal. And remember, leptin is coming from the adipose tissue and leptin is signaling satiety because of the mass of adipose tissue. And that, that satiety signaling then um, controls the expression of the NPY and the agouti response protein, as well as the POMC polyprotein, in reference to other hormones like adiponectin, which works basically in the contrary uh, to leptin, and also ghrelin, um, which is a gas-associated hormone that also controls the feeding mechanisms that come from signaling that occurs after the introduction of the satiety signals from the visceral fat or from the gastric region or from other regions in the body, signaling to the hypothalamic arch, uh, particularly the arcuate nucleus and the VMH, and then associating that with feeding. So, and, and the potential for apoptosis to occur um, if there's an uh, overabundance of signaling. So what I'm doing here this morning on the 4th of May, is I'm going to give you a general endocrine lecture so that this will complement what I've been doing in the video lectures. So that's enough introduction. So what is the endocrine system? It's composed of cells and organs, of course, that are going to be specialized to biosynthesize and then ultimately secrete various kinds of hormones into the bloodstream. And they're going to be acting to distant or peripheral target cells. So what are hormones? They're blood-borne biochemical messengers. They affect target cells anatomically distant from the secreting cell. <clears throat> so what kind of hormone structures do we normally encounter? And what is their subsequent action or function? We have neurocrine hormones. The secretion of hormones into the bloodstream by neurons, that's the ones we're talking about here, like the NPY neurons in the hypothalamus or the POMC neurons. 
Then there's the strict endocrine. That's the secretion of hormones into the bloodstream by an endocrine gland, like the pancreas, for example, like insulin coming from the pancreas. Then there's a paracrine type hormone. That's a hormonal molecule that's secreted by one cell that affects adjacent cells. And then there's, of course, autocrine, where the hormone is secreted by the cell that it affects. So the hormone synthesized, secreted, and affects the secreting cell. So those are kind of like broad, general um, descriptors. So what about the chemical structure of hormone Well, you have two basic types. You have the type that are aqueous soluble. This includes most peptides and particularly also the tyrosine-derived catecholamines. And then there are the lipids, and the lipids include all the steroids um, and, of course, the thyroid hormones, which are also lipids. Okay, so two, just in broad stroke chemical structure. Then we can talk about what are the mechanisms of hormone action. First of all, there are hormones with cell membrane receptor-mediated responses. <clears throat> These are hormones that exert their action by binding to target cell receptor proteins. The water-soluble hormones have a hormone-binding site, usually located on the periphery or the outer leaflet of the membrane. And that is what we could generally call a specific cell surface receptor, right? Once binding take, takes place on that receptor by that ligand, which is now a hormone, there's a conformational change in the receptor protein that conveys a signal usually through the mem membrane system, the plasma membrane system, ultimately into the interior of the cell. So you have G-protein-linked receptors. Now, these are proteins that are, by definition, a second messenger organization. They're generated within the cell in response to an initial message, like ligand binding. Most endocrine hormones actually affect their targets through G-protein-coupled receptors, GPCRs. And there are two different subtypes. There's the GS and the GQ, okay? So these G-protein-linked receptors, type GS, increase the production of cyclic AMP, which comes from ATP via the enzyme adenylate cyclase. The usual downstream target of a cyclic AMP is an enzyme that is cyclic AMP-dependent called protein kinase A, or PKA. Of course, you know, the kinases attach phosphate covalently to other proteins, usually other proteins. <clears throat> so some important hormones that are linked in this way <laughs> through the G cyclic AMP GS, S is stimulatory, the subscript sub S, include the following. The adrenocorticotropic hormone, that's ACTH, thyroid-stimulating hormone, TSH, follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH, luteinizing hormone, epinephrine, which binds to beta receptors, parathyroid hormone, antidiuretic hormone, or ADH, and, of course, glucagon. Okay? Now, G-protein-linked receptors of the GQ variety are linked to the production of two second messengers, at least, diacylglycerol, and inositol trisphosphate. Now, these are coming from preformed glycerol phospholipids found in the membrane. So, for example, inositol, a phosphatidyl inositol phosphate, or PIP, 
And then there's usually a number after that, like PIP3, where that means there's three phosphates associated with it on the inositol sugar portion, which becomes the head group of that glycerol phospholipid. Um, that's a very common way to signal through. So there's an enzyme of phospholipase, which will remove the, the inositol trisphosphate and, elite, and leave behind the diacylglycerol backbone of preformed glycerol phospholipids in the membrane. That's how that works. So that's one. Then there's norepinephrine and epinephrine, or uh, they're also known as adrenaline and noradrenaline, right? And they can activate the GQ pathway by binding to an alpha-1 receptor on target cells. Diacylglycerol and inositol trisphosphate increase the activity of a different protein kinase called PKC, C. That's going to phosphorylate other downstream target proteins, and that's going to also alter cell fate, cell metabolism, cell expression of genes, which are ultimately going to trigger a response. Now, protein kinase receptors are cell surface receptors that become activated just all by themselves. They are usually associated with the cytoplasmic kinase as well, and that's usually on their inner domain. So you have sometimes autophosphorylation, and then once a uh, protein becomes autophosphorylated and it has free phosphate, it then can be a phosphorylating, phosphorylating enzyme to yet newer proteins that are going to be distal to the membrane somewhere in the cytoplasm. Okay. So they phosphorylate their target proteins upon binding of the hormone to some external binding site. So other kinds of protein kinase receptors um, are the receptor kinases themselves that are like insulin receptor. Insulin receptor autophosphorylates tyrosine residues, uh, which is a free hydroxyl group. And it also goes on to phosphorylate tyrosine in its target. So these are tyrosine kinases. And they're gonna activate several different intracellular signaling cascades. <coughs> so growth hormone and prolactin receptors, uh, so that was insulin, but GH and prolactin they're associated with a different kinase. Those are called Jack kinases or Janus kinases. Another mechanism of hormone action is the amplification of a hormone activity, right? Kind of like opening up a floodgate. You get progressively larger numbers of chemical reactions occurring at each step. So you get an increase in the molarity of the signal. And that results in the activation of numerous subsequent downstream G proteins. That produces significant, rapid, and a flooding of cellular and systemic responses with starting with an initial small mole concentration of the circulating hormone. Hormones also have intracellular receptors. These can be, especially the lipids. So like the thyroid hormone, steroid hormones. These diffuse easily through a lipid bilayer. And then the receptors for those hormones are usually localized in the cytoplasm or maybe even in the nucleus of target cells. So these might turn into transcription factors. The binding causes a change in the affinity of the receptor, and it can cause a binding onto the DNA in the cell nucleus. Now, we talked about one of these proteins just yesterday in the video lecture I gave. The protein was called CHOP, C-H-O-P. And that protein is going to be expressed via this signaling transduction cascade of kinases, ultimately linked to signaling from uh, uh, depot fat uh, in association with 
leptin, and then countering that, adiponectin. We talked about that in the past. We'll get back into that. Don't worry. So <laughs> hormones with intracellular receptors. This is where gene expression is changed by the binding of the hormone receptor complex to a specific DNA binding site. That's usually a promoter region, like a cat region. The onset of action of these lipid hormones is slower compared to the water-soluble ones because here there's no real need for an amplification, the cascade, okay? The water-soluble hormones, um, they might have to be working through kinases, but with the lipid-soluble or the lipid hormones, they usually have to be moved at being bound non-covalently via hydrophobic interactions to uh, subcellular proteins called lipid-binding proteins which don't bind to the lipids covalently, but rather interact hydro hydrophobically. So that slows the process down. Now, another aspect of hormones that, of course, you know, should be like, I guess, pretty obvious is that you have to synthesize and secrete them, and they can also be metabolized, right? So it's a whole other series of upstream effects that you have to keep in mind. So most endocrine hormones are actually proteins or polypeptides. <laughs> They're made in the subcellular region on what's called the rough endoplasmic reticulum, and they use glycoproteins, and they're stored in vesicles within the cell or endosomes. They can be cleaved by specific enzymes, so they can be converted. Those enzymes then become called proteolytic convertases, and they can release the active or final form of that hormone, okay? So, hormone synthesis secretes the metabolism of the water-soluble hormones, like peptide hormones. They can be contained within the lipid bilayer of a vesicle, and they can be stored as well until some kind of trigger, molecular or biochemical trigger, results in the exocytosis of the hormone into what's called the extracellular matrix space. Catecholamines, for example, are formed by enzymes within the cytoplasm, that began, of course, with tyrosine, amino acid tyrosine, and through a series of biochemical uh, sequenced reactions, they convert tyrosine to dopamine, norepinephrine, or epinephrine. Right? The lipid hormones, you know, like for example, steroid hormones, they're formed on demand from the parent steroid cholesterol. And this cholesterol is stored in the plasma membrane, or it can actually be um, retrieved from circulating lipoproteins like LDL or HDL or VLDL or IDL. Thyroid hormones synthesis usually precedes secretion by even weeks or months. This is a very, very slow homeostatic process. And that is occurring in the thyroid follicle. And they're bound to a protein told you that lipids bind to proteins. That protein for thyroid hormone is called thyroglobulin. That's right, the globin chain is, is, is written large here. Secretion occurs via the cleavage of the thyroid hormone based on systemic needs that are going to be determined from the central nervous system, particularly the hypothalamic pituitary uh, arc. Okay. So what are some factors affecting hormone secretion? For example, the anterior pituitary gland hormones are regulated by the hypothalamus in regular cycles. Feeding fasting cycle, which we've been talking quite a bit about. Light dark, okay, so photo period. Sleep wake, 
another really important cycle for the regulation of these hormones. And then there's the overall 24-hour period or circadian rhythm. And then there are even longer cycles. And the most common one for that is the menstrual cycle, which is roughly 28 days. Other factors affecting hormone secretion, you get acute systemic needs or stressors that can rise up and they can partially override those cyclic patterns we just talked about. And they will totally remodel hormone secretion. <clears throat> this is very important to consider when you have this, the canonical cyclical hormone release. When you're interpreting a measurement or attempting to provide hormone replacement therapy, they're supposed to be mimicking that normal physiological pattern. There's also feedback control of secretion. This is absolutely front and center in how hormones are regulated. So you get negative feedback control. So some aspect of the secreted hormone is biochemically um, recognized by hormone protein or hormone other molecule interaction. And that interaction then induces another signal. And that signal ultimately will regulate and if it's negative feedback, it'll shut down further secretion. An example of that is TSH on thyroid hormones. This maintains a hormone activity, this kind of feedback control, within a workable, normalized range, right? So a range it conforms within set points so that the normal activity of that hormone can be recognized and delivered upon demand. So... What about metabolism and excretion? Now, this sounds a little bit like a pharmacology class. That's because it is a lot like a pharmacology class um, because this is what we teach in pharmacology. <laughs> we talk about ingestion of a drug. We talk about its digestion. We talk about its interaction with other proteins. Ultimately, we talk about its mode of action or its target. And then after that, we talk about how it is delivered um, to maybe a microsomal system like a cytochrome P450 uh, system where it is degraded and ultimately eliminated, right? So it's the same thing with these hormones. They go through basically a life cycle that can be in the blood or it can be in tissues, but ultimately the hormonal signal has to be removed. You can't have the hormonal signal always on, right? It has to turn down. In fact, it has to turn down and then shut off Otherwise, you overshoot the mark. And this is what we were talking about yesterday with the POMC neurons and leptin-mediated responses. But you can overshoot your mark and you can actually induce programmed cell death of central nervous system neurons. If you have an overproduction of a hormone um, that is dysregulated because of a dysregulation of metabolism, for example, that associated with a disease state such as cardiovascular disease or cancer or a chronic disease state like aging, because aging will ultimately lead to death, or the more common chronic disease that we see in the United States these days, which is obesity, obesity, right? Which, as you know, is a major health problem in the country. So I just want to make, I want to make that abundantly clear before we go on. <laughs> so hormones are metabolized and excreted. The water-soluble hormones are secreted basically as a urinary filtrate. 
the, the lipid hormones are bound to plasma proteins because this is how they move around because their lipids are not going to be soluble in the aqueous milieu of the serum. <laughs> They're bound to plasma proteins. They can be stored in adipose tissue and then they can remain in circulation for long periods of time as long as they're bound to those proteins. They can be metabolized ultimately, any of these hormones, by the kidneys and the liver, and they can be degraded by, uh, by target cells after binding to some receptor. So half-life is something we talk about in hormone metabolism and excretion. Half-life is the duration of the hormone's activity in circulation. It's usually expressed in minutes, hours, or days. Half-life is the time for a hormone to reach one half of its original concentration in the blood. And it's influenced by the rate of uptake of cells, degradation, that is metabolism down to some degrada degradation product, and ultimately excretion. But what about pharmacologic hormone concentrations? Physiological hormone concentrations are extremely low in most cases micromolar, or even nanomolar. Pharmacological levels are usually several fold higher than would normally be secreted by an endocrine tissue. Now that's because those pharmacological agents have to make it through multiple passes of circulation. And during circulation, peptides and lipids can be degraded or can adhere to uh, endothelial cell walls. They can uh, they can be further modified or degraded by the microsomal P450 system. So those drugs are not at the same concentration that something that is synthesized endogenously with a similar chemical structure function relationship would be. So this is a problem when you're using a pharmacological agent. Even if it mimics exactly an endogenous agent, metabolized differently. Think, for example, about the... Um, endogenous opioids, right, like the endorphins and how they're synthesized as a proteolytic degradation product <coughs> from the pro-opiomelanocortin polyprotein. <coughs> now, those find their receptors and are, you, and are analgesic uh, in the central nervous system to alleviate pain and compare that to something like an ingested opiate like morphine or heroin and how it's very easy for people to overdose on those drugs. It's because they're not synthesized endogenously. They're not identical in structure to the endogenous endorphins. And beyond that, they're not metabolized the same way and not regulated the same way either by feedback inhibition, for example. So a totally different um, set of criterion you have to think about when you think about endogenous hormones and then pharmacological agents which are treated as hormones. So pharmacological levels are usually several fold greater. They'll be normally secreted by any endocrine tissue. And the tissue response to a pharmacological hormone concentration can also differ tremendously. Binding constant, um, its residence time on the receptor, its ability to compete with endogenous um, hormones of the same structure, and of course, its degradation, whether or not it's more resistant to degradation or more facile to degradation or mobilization, or sequestration, or excretion. And this is what pharmacists do. They try to create drugs that mimic endogenous structures, biochemical structures, but which can facilitate binding to a target tissue, not just the receptor, but a target tissue, do its business, and then be destroyed or be degraded 
right? And that's why people have to have a dose response curve for drugs, right? And the drugs are usually in milligram quantities, whereas the same compound synthesized endogenously, as I just said, could be at the microgram, submicrogram level. So the ability of a cell to respond to a particular hormone depends on the presence of a specific receptor, obviously. And we talked then about the OBDB pathway for leptin, right? The leptin receptor versus the leptin molecule itself. Ligand binds to its receptor. Target cells are able to regulate the responsiveness to hormones by altering receptor number, the affinity to that receptor, and the efficiency of coupling that ligand binding to its receptor to any other now intracellular biochemical phenomena. Right? So there's a lot to consider here, even when you're thinking about the endogenous hormones, obviously. And that includes things like receptor specificity and affinity. Specificity basically is, talks about molecular fit of a particular hormone structure within a receptor binding site, or they call it a pocket. <coughs> the affinity describes to how tight it binds in that pocket or, or makes that hormone receptor bond, um, or even the inclination of the hormone to remain bound to the receptor without being washed out with an endogenous compound of similar structure or with some antagonist that's also endogenous, or also could be taken, be taken along with another series of pharmacological agents when a person has multiple health issues. Right? So all of this has to be uh, taken into consideration. There's also the effect of the potency of the, of the hormone itself. How sustaining is it? And can that sustaining of that activity be tolerated long enough for it to do its work, uh, say to decrease uh, feeding and intake and in, in trying to find a drug that controls uh, obesity without completely disrupting the erexigenic and erectogenic pathways, particularly of the NPY, agouti, and the POMC complexes, respectively. So I'm going to leave you with that for now. Uh, we're going to stop and we're going to uh, go to part two of our um, hormonal, general hormonal lecture an authentic biochemistry series here. Probably going to do two or three of these today. Each one is about a half an hour because it's my limitation on this platform I use. Uh, and it's good because I don't want to overload you with just plain structure, uh, structured lecture material. I'm just giving you this as a background so that you can refer to it so that I can use the terminology and so that you have the concepts and the ideas in mind about how hormones work in the general sense and then the very specific sense. And a major take-home message here is that pharmacological agents, even when they're supposed to mimic endogenous agents, are not the same. They're not metabolized the same. They're not received the same. They don't feedback inhibit the same way. So they're not under a general recognized control. And the second other big take-home message here is that lipids versus aqueous soluble hormones of the various classes are quite different. Lipid-soluble ones work slower and they also require binding, non-covalent binding to proteins to be translocated and move around in the system, in the biological system, because they're not soluble and aqueous. And that adds a whole other series of biochemical interactions that you have to take into mind when you think about lipids as hormones versus aqueous soluble. So with that, I'm going to leave you for now for this lecture. This is Dr. Dan Guerra um, saying bye for now. <laughs>